Back to Optimism Vaccine, the most important serious film podcast on the internet. And joining me today, I've got a man who, uh, he just broke his internet, totally fried his modem because he downloaded a virus instead of a 10 gigabyte file of erotic James Bond fan fiction. Jake Trapeel is here. Listen, I, I like to play dangerous when I do my internet, okay, Steve? So don't be judging me for what I download onto my machine. <laughs> I'll have none of it. Yeah, whatever, dude. Just because you tried to download... Q fucks Rocket Watch. Come on. I mean, I know what you're up to. See that. <laughs> that can't possibly That's be a, a bad great, time. That's a great <laughs> impromptu Bond joke there. Yeah, and also, if you're listening to this right now, make sure you check out for your ears only on this podcast feed. Uh, see, it's a plug. It all it all comes together. Uh, yeah. Also joining us today, he's been a film critic for over a decade. Some people call him LCJ. We call him Lights, Camera, Jack Eason. How you doing, pal? <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing. Oh, that's, man. That's the correct response to that. My, uh, my parents aren't rich enough to coddle me to, to get that way. Poor kid. Someone needs you, to put him down. You little, you little precocious film critic, you. Uh <laughs> All I'm just going up us. to lady actresses and telling them they're whores. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> uh, also joining us, he's uh, he's a big deal on Twitter and also an esteemed film critic. You can find him on Twitter at uh, at Next Best Picture. Sean Glynis <laughs> is here. Hey, he. <laughs> I finally got the unfollow. Uh, I'm pretty proud of that. Um, Wait, you, he followed you and then he unfollowed you? Why did he follow you to begin with? Are you that big of a fucking deal? No, because he follows like 800,000 people or whatever. And I, I'm almost positive he had me on mute. And then my screenshot of him like made enough rounds that he, he must have seen it somehow and decided. <laughs> that's my, that's my, uh, my, my guess, but yeah. I don't know. He seems to be ignoring me. Uh, Matt, I know you're listening. Uh, please, please follow me, man. Uh, right now, my whole shtick with him we, is I, I follow him. On, I follow him on Letterbox, and every time he posts a review for a 2020 movie, I comment and say, "Is this the next best picture?" You know what you should do is on on Twitter. You should say like uh, you should do that that move where it's like, "Hey, uh, follow me back. I have some uh, I, I have some interesting news about what could be the next best picture." Ooh. Uh, and then um, DM, DM him. Yeah, drop my hot DM. I like that. One, See, the, saved, the only other time... Uh, I was just going to say, I saved his uh, his four reaction shots uh, from the stages of watching Hamilton tweet, and I'm tempted every time he uh, releases a tweet into the ether, I'm just going to re reply to it with one of those images as my reaction. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it should be a fun time. For, for anyone not on Twitter, we apologize for this section. <laughs> <laughs> you should be. Just make an account right now and follow at Next Best Picture. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's he's great. He's a great dude. Yeah, my only other interaction with him was one time he was asking for a lady co-host for an episode of his podcast, <laughs> and I, I replied and told him that I had a Whoopi Goldberg soundboard, and he fucking ignored me. Whatever, man. Missing Fuck out. you, dude. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, this week... 
we're jumping back into the world of Shinya Tsukamoto. We had to take a, a week off from him because uh, this shit's heavy. And unless you're Sean Glynnis, who likes to marathon three Tsukamoto films in an afternoon like a psycho, uh, it's, it's a lot to take on at once. Sean, how was going sicko mode on Tsukamoto for you this week? Suko mode. Um, Sicko on pseudo. Suko. Uh, I fucked it up. Redo. It was. <laughs> it, it was fine this time because uh, these are three very different movies. I mean, within like it's obviously like Sukumoto, but um, I, I think the you know I've only watched these first six so far, but um, I think these three kind of have a good range of what he can do like you have a, a snake of june uh we're going to be talking about and that's that sort of a carries over that that same uh aesthetic as uh the last three we talked about it's just kind of very um uh up front and blunt and um and then you have gemini which is um bizarre and like funny and uh beautiful and uh just just weird it's like sinister um and then you have kotoko which is like a melodrama um so yeah it's it's interesting i mean not your traditional melodrama obviously but we'll get into that sure sure yeah I, I figured we'd start off with with gemini and this one is interesting because it's one of only a handful of sukumoto films that aren't total sukumoto productions so uh generally he writes he produces he directs he often stars in his own movies and Gemini is, it's, it's a studio film. He was a director for hire, uh, although he did get to work with his uh, favorite composer for the music, and obviously he got to, to write and direct. So it's, it's still a Tsukamoto movie at its core, but this is actually uh, an adaptation of a Rampo short story from 1920s, I believe. And it's, it's just interesting to watch because I don't think Throughout his career, Tsukamoto has really done many period pieces. So this is kind of a fun movie to watch him just step outside of his comfort zone and, and do something that's visually a little bit different from anything else I've seen him do. And god damn, uh, this movie is just like... It, it sort of starts out almost like an Ozu movie in, in a way and not just in the aesthetic, but also in the way that it just kind of sort of depicts this very traditional Japanese family. And then, uh, things get a little wacky, I'd say. Yeah. It, <laughs> I, 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 I loved it. Yeah, it's great. I would say the, the just with all the, the lush colors, it was kind of more, I got a more of a one car Y vibe from the, from the opening act. It's, it's very mm -hmm. uh, like gorgeously shot. Like you have these, deep reds from in the mood for love and play and it's it's very uh yeah it's very kind of mellow and stately at least coming off of the three films we watched previously a, it starts out as a nice change of pace for Sukumoto, but no less assured mind you there, there's some overlap yeah in terms of the in terms of the colors uh to like tokyo or not tokyo fist well, that's in color as well but um tetsuo 2 uses very striking blues and reds and this kind of just has a richer palette than that um that kind of oscillates between them depending on what it's depicting and certainly um yeah I, as steve says tsukamoto is not really known for period pieces uh, the only one i can think of off he's done 
He's done one other fil- film just pr- that's set prior to this, uh, Killing, his most recent, is a samurai film, and then Fires on the Plain, which is a remake, or I guess another adaptation of the same novel, Connie Chikawa made a film about it too, will be set in World War II, so that's a technically a period piece, but that's, I think, I think that's it, as far as I can recall, and this is certainly his first film that is not set basically in urban Tokyo, um, and it it's, really... It's- stands out it's interesting on that note too because um it it also of these six that we've watched um it seems like the most overtly about class issues like uh, the others are taking place in tokyo and have like uh very you know subtextual implicit uh ideas and thoughts uh, about about class or a certain milieu um it's funny, like the uh, I read a um, a snippet or a synopsis of Snake of June, and it was like an unnamed metropolis in Japan. <laughs> like, oh, I wonder which one. Uh, but <laughs> but like um, you you know what I mean? Like they have uh, a certain uh, scope, and but this Gemini is very much um, bringing up in the forefront ideas about. Uh, poor people and it was funny to watch this in uh an epidemic because there's a plague going on in this story and basically like uh uh the the plot is just that this this rich doctor uh who kind of has it all with his wife and whatnot um his uh his twin brother who's poor comes to town and um basically like uh, puts him into a hole and uh uh pulls a fast one on his wife um, and there are some twists and turns throughout, but that's that's basically it. Um, but yeah, this is, but it's very much about like these tensions and uh, the main uh, the protagonist is very open about how uh, poor people spread this disease and their scum of the earth. Mm-hmm. One of the things yeah, that I, I really um, like. Oh, go ahead, Jake. Sorry. Uh, well, I was just gonna say. Um, yeah, because I mean, I haven't seen this film in many, many years, and I kind of forgotten most about it. But you know, watching it in terms of as a, a class film, it's like watching this. Uh, Jordan Peele definitely, like, surely had this as a reference point for us. Mm-hmm. Um, he introduces him for, I mean, he introduces an, a race element, uh, which really, you know, separates his film from this. But there is a. I mean, the the doppelganger is kind of a classic element of psychological horror and and kind of uh, allegorical storytelling. But the color usage here and the kind of the I say that class structure um, of a kind of lower class doppelganger replacing another seems very in line with this. There's kind of a an aura of threat in both films, a sort of a mysteriousness. Gemini is interesting in that it actually kind of becomes less mysterious as it goes. It kind of explains itself to a point where there is actually kind of a literal story line through it, but it still feels kind of... There's still a lot of elements within it. Like, for example, no one has any eyebrows in this film for, for some reason. Just uh, maybe to mask their expressions, potentially, just to, you know, kind of make the, everyone seem a little bit unusual. Like, everything's very stylized. Mm-hmm. Um but the actual storyline is you you can read certain there's a class reading you can do to it but it also kind of you could also come out of it as kind of a duality of man piece it's it's less it's it's less i guess implicitly allegorical or or i guess class based to something like us um it kind of, it's kind of nice cuz it kind of gives you just a space you can explore 
Um, and certainly there, there's obvious pointers for directions you can go, but at the end of it, it's almost like two parts of a single man have united uh, with much, uh, I guess, fallout from that. It's kind of interesting. And also, again, uh, which is kind of similar to Tsukamoto, um, has a woman to the a woman to the side who's kind of being affected by this and is being kind of at, kind of is being brought into the center of the story from the sidelines in kind of an unusual way, um, which seems to be something that kind of set, becomes a theme of his films from Tokyo Fist onwards. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned that <laughs> nobody has any eyebrows in this movie, and <laughs> I love the way that even though a good chunk of this movie takes place inside of this really like stately kind of dry uh, upper class Japanese home. It still has this weird sense of, of dread to it. And mm-hmm. part of it is just the expressions on everyone's faces and the look in their eyes and just the way that he frames everything. It makes completely mundane situations like oh we're sitting around drinking tea just feel very very uncomfortable like there's almost a grotesque nature to these rich people just sitting around hanging out doing everyday tasks it's really like unnerving um and then to it's kind of like a foil to that once we get to see what the slum looks like all of a sudden you get all these huge pops of color and everyone's hair is gigantic and they're they're kind of stylized with all this makeup and everything is completely over the top and it, it's just this great contrast between the two yeah it's it's like uh i i wondered what the process was on post production on this as far as like color correction or whatever but um there's just like such good like gloss and and whatnot but uh mm-hmm. it's it's one of the rare movies where like literally every single shot i was just like wow wow like there there there's no bad shot here there's there's no shot in this that isn't like something to just pause and like look at it it's it's really remarkable i didn't know that sukamoto had that in him uh like not to be condescending but i just didn't know that this was like this style set was really in his repertoire yeah Yeah, you get used to the uh shaky cam chaos yeah (laughs) Yeah, and of course it's worth noting Tsukamoto, um, as much as we say this is this is not a Tsukamoto film in terms of uh, he didn't write the script originally, although he adapted from the short story. Uh, he didn't fund this it. That's why it's not in the box. Previous films. It, uh, yeah, f- effectively, I don't believe he, he may not. Have, I know he's purchased the rights to some of his films back. But I don't. I genuinely don't know if he owns the rights to this one. So yeah, it's, it doesn't. It doesn't repeat appear in, say, for like Arrow's recent box of box set of his films. It's not in there. Um, but it's it's interesting because Sukamoto still does everything in this film. He does all the stuff he normally does. He still was the camera operator and cinematographer. So nothing has changed in terms of the crew. I guess there's a more supportive crew around him that he and he had some. There's certainly some elements of this, um, like they built the well for the guy gets, uh, the wealthy guy gets thrown down a well. They actually built like a 70 foot or so well structure um, that you can kind of, you know, to, to create that set. And there's no way Tsukamoto could have afforded to do that for any of his previous films. Um, but, you know, it, it's kind of like, other than that, it's kind of remarkable how much he was able to be brought into the film and still do pretty much what he wanted to, um, which I think was is due to the star, Masahiro Motoki, who um, p- 
plays the two the two twin brothers um, who's apparently was really the kind of genesis for the whole project. It originally was conceived as a short film and he was kind of pushing to get it made and then uh, brought Tsukamoto on board and then it got uh, pushed out into a feature length film. And of course, Tsukamoto feature length, it's like 84 minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's very, very digestible. But um, really, I, I think he got Tsukamoto on board. And from there, Tsukamoto pretty much really just does everything he would normally do. Um, and it is it's it is interesting to look at just how different it feels to his prior films. While he's maturing with his previous films or, you know, kind of altering i mean i would argue even tetsuo is an incredibly mature work although it's kind of like a punk explosion mm-hmm. but it, it is what it's supposed to be right um yeah i mean i, I definitely i agree with sean like this is a, a wholly different kind of a, a setup in terms of uh composition editing rhythm i'm sure he edited this himself as well but the, there's kind the of like story, a, the, just the storytelling as well is like so richly developed uh like i had so much fun watching this and uh, that I can't remember the the main actor's name that you mentioned, but um, when the twin brother comes to town, like he is just he he plays these two characters so so well, and and like I said, sinister, and um, the way that like <laughs> there's and it's 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 still as brutal as some of those early uh, Sukamoto movies are, like just the way that he's taunting this guy with that he has like in this hole, just taunting him about how. Uh, how well him and his wife are getting on. Um, it, it's it's uh, it's impressive. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to I wanted to mention because you know, Steve, you were briefly touching upon like how the first thirty minutes or so just has this really creepy feeling, but then we get to the the home invasion is like caught me off guard is and it's like one of the most terrifying things I've seen recently because it's accompanied by this crazy music sting, uh, which I believe uh, our our dear. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it Jesus. Just, like, drops in and out, and it's like blaring out of your speakers. Uh, and yeah, it's in this guy in the shadows, and he's, like, you don't know what's wrong with him. It's kind of like the bum from Mulholland Drive. It really yes. disorienting, <laughs> but it's. Which, so which this film predates. And, yeah. and I, I, you know, I mean, I think that's a an interesting point. Like, I genuinely wonder if David Lynch, like, I. Quite likely, David Lynch saw this. It played at Venice. It, it got distribution. I, you know, I do wonder if there's an overlap there because yeah, the fur and the caked mud on him. You know, there, there's a. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a major stretch to think that the the mm-hmm. creature behind the dumpster in Mulholland Drive might not be some kind of a doppelganger version. You know, his his take on this. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. That. Honestly, like the last time I saw this movie, I mean, I watched it this week, but prior to this, uh, I, I had seen it maybe, I don't know, over a decade ago, and I didn't remember a ton about it, but one of the things that stuck in my head was that music sting. Like, I've, I've never been able to shake it. It's just really deeply unsettling. And it's, it's kind of funny, too, because this is one of the few... Tsukamoto's movies, they get lumped in with horror all the time, but you really have to bend over backwards to find an actual like traditional horror movie. If you look across his filmography filmography and this Gemini might be the closest thing he has to kind of a traditional horror movie. But then you look at what was going on with uh, Asian horror films at the time. And to think that 
stuff like The Ring and uh, The Grudge and stuff like that was really in vogue. And then he comes back and, and does something like this. And it's just uh, vintage Tsukamoto, <laughs> yeah. man. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It's completely uh, and, against and, the grade. And, and we should mention, like uh, like I said, this is not in Arrow's new box. And um, my, uh, even though, and Jack mentioned it, played at Venice and, and whatnot. But as far as like contemporary or, or modern day viewers or whatever, like in 2020, this doesn't seem to be like a big like pull off the shelf movie for a lot of people um uh and the you know it not being in that box uh doesn't help uh but it did get uh this new beautiful release from mondo macabre uh like literally the only thing i i would have wanted that they didn't send me for free uh unfortunately <laughs> but um but uh it, it, yeah. it's it, hopefully uh people grab onto that or or the box will lead them to that because yeah i do i do wonder about that because i I feel like tsukamoto is like when i was kind of when i was starting to explore asian horror in like the early 2000s tsukamoto was like pretty well like him and miike takashi miike was on the rise and they were kind of they they worked together in fact i think takashi miike may have made the behind the scenes featurette for gemini uh i'm not sure of that i know he did one of them with tsukamoto um, but like they were very much like name brand directors. I mean, and Tetsu obviously is kind of just a known cult hit. But you know, um, yeah, it, it, Gemini seemed like it was a better, you know, a better known film. I feel like maybe it's just kind of fallen out of vogue for a while. So I'm kind of hoping maybe it'll come back in because I, you know, it's a really rich, interesting film, um, and it seems, and you know, kind of like a film that should be more popular. And it, certainly, I think this is more accessible probably than any of his other films to this point mm-hmm. um you know i think tsukamoto is a very you know as he said himself about tetsuo he knew that everyone was either gonna love or hate that film you know it's not a film you don't casually watch tetsuo um <laughs> and he's kind of held that aesthetic throughout you know when we get to kotoko i mean that's also not really like a casual sit down view kind of film uh gemini is just weird enough without being too weird that i think uh Probably if I, you know, if I had to show a, a Tsukamoto film to a complete stranger, this would be among the ones I would consider. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's totally as well accessible. And it, it hits on all the things that make him great and make him a compelling filmmaker. But it's not, you know, like you said, something like Tetsuo where it grabs you by the throat and tosses you across the room. Uh, I, I am really glad that this did get a recent Blu-ray release, though, because... You know, again, I when I first saw this years ago, I don't remember the, the colors popping the way they do here. And I actually I looked up the trailer, uh, you know, to borrow the music stinger that I was playing. And they had the the old standard definition trailer from however many years ago that was probably included on the original DVD release. And just to see how the film footage looks so just kind of washed out compared to how it looks on the, on the new Blu-ray release. It's, it's night and day. It's like watching a different movie. So, <laughs> you know, if this is something you haven't seen in years, or if you're trying to dip your toes into Tsukamoto or you're going through the box set and you're enjoying it, like do not sleep on Gemini. It's a genuine, great movie. It's a gem. <clears throat> a gem. <laughs> so is there something about that term that it means doubling? Well, in astrology well yeah, yeah. The, the uh, Gemini, sean maybe maybe you should uh check out your star chart buddy 
I should, but I didn't. The, yeah, the, the Zodiac, the Gemini are the twins, and the Zodiac. Okay. Sign. Yeah. I figured that was a dumb question, but I, I was still thought I, I would ask because of Gemini, yeah. man. No, there's, yeah. there's, so, no, yeah, was, there's no bad questions on the Optimus Vaccine podcast, Sean. <laughs> well, I mean, we might as well Just answer some movies. questions. It's not... It's not really our strong point generally. So that actually, it's, it's that actually wasn't my question. It came in through the email box from Myros, and I just thought uh, we should uh, address it on, on on the air. So that's that's very kind. Another of thing I think, and another thing I think is interesting about this film, um, getting back to kind of its its doubling thing, is that like as much as we talk about like a class reading, it also feels like I was talking about earlier about it being kind of almost you could read it psychologically as well. Um, it's a little bit like a button-down rational mind meeting a artistic mind. I mean, there, there's also, as you say, that they're very staid and still and intellectual as a doctor, but then the uh, all the, the, the poor people who live in the, the quote-unquote slums are all kind of like traveling theater people. So there's almost like a, a artistic, like there's almost a battle of um, kind of the rational mind versus an artistic mind, a free-form chaotic energy um, and a symbiosis that's, that's reached through them. Um, but it's also kind of interesting because it's, and I don't know exactly where to go with it fully, but um, as they join, they influence each other that, you know, effectively they swap places to some degree uh, and the chaotic uh, mm-hmm. evil twin, quote unquote, evil twin becomes, he's he's able to fit into the milieu of the doctor. He studied him. He's able to fit in. And meanwhile, the, uh, the doctor living down in the bottom of a well for God only knows how long becomes feral and, and chaotic. Um, but what's interesting, I suppose, is the way that the wife thinks. So uh, part of the twist to explain is that the wife, um, the doctor's wife, he's rescued her. She has amnesia. Um, it turns out she actually used to be the girlfriend of his twin um, and it's and she didn't really have amnesia she's escaping from him but she is able to identify when the two switch but then they when when the evil twin switches he denies that they switch and starts kind of gaslight her on it uh, she's like I'm glad you're back it's good you know we've we've made yeah. it but he's like no I'm I'm still the other guy what are you talking about um, and so it's kind of an interesting portrait as well of uh, kind of a masculine kind of the, the I suppose a masculine struggle imprinting itself on a woman um, I think there, there's something of a reading there in terms of how she holds herself and kind of maintains her individuality but is pushed around a little bit it's it's sort of kind of a, an unusual one and like I said before I feel like there's a kind of like Snake of June but also Tokyo Fist particularly where the female character actually shifts into the focus in many sequences being kind of almost more important than the the quote-unquote main character um and it, yeah it's it's kind of a, a strange symbiosis of so many different elements within the storyline mm-hmm. yeah there's, I, there's I, a lot of anxiety I, I just, like just uh sorry I was, I was gonna segue into Snake of June but uh I don't want to hold off Steve's thoughts. Oh, I was just going to say something really stupid uh, about how I, I love how... <laughs> I know that. So, I know. Oh, yeah, I know obviously, that right? That's what I'm fucking here for. Uh, Sudakichi, who is the, like, the the feral, interloping, b- bad guy character in this or whatever, the, the guy who throws our boy in the well, I love how he just, he, like, studies him 
and completely commits to being a doctor, but also knows his limits. So he like closed down, closes down the, the clinic for surgery and everything and goes about <laughs> everything normally. And then at one point you can tell he's getting a little bit bored and he just like sticks his head down the well and he's like, I think I'm going to start injecting your patients with piss <laughs> <laughs> just to yeah. see what happens. And it's just, yeah. it's some evil shit. And all these, these shots that they have where, uh, Yukio is down in the well and he's just looking down at him with this crazy, like maniacal look on his face and, and just, you know, he's like, yo, I'm going to bang your wife. I'm going to inject your patients with pee. <laughs> I'm going to take your life over. Uh, you're going to die in a well. How great is that? It's, it's some really evil shit and it's, it's just masterfully acted. Like you, you forget that this is two characters being played by yeah. the same guy, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Matoki is fantastic in this, and it's kind of I, I, the only other films I've seen him in is uh, probably the main ones, the Bird People in China, the Takashi Miike film, and a very, I think, underrated Takashi Miike film. But he always tends to play buttoned-up businessmen, so he starts in that mode in this film. But then, yeah, when he goes crazy, I mean, it really is a. Um, it's kind of funny because we say that the one thing this Tsukamoto film doesn't have is a role for Tsukamoto. He's he stays behind the camera entirely. Um, and otherwise, if he had made this film himself, would he have played the lead character? I, I don't know, but he, it's certainly, as much as I think Tsukamoto is a capable actor in the roles he casts himself in his films, he could never have carried a role like this. It would no. not be in his wheelhouse. And Motoki is just phenomenal in the bodily transformation, in the way that he kind of, and I mean, coupled with the lighting, the way that they, the light shines across his face and catches features and it's just demonic yeah. uh it's fantastic yeah also you're doing our boy matoki dirty he was in uh departures well, I mean, he was in <laughs> departures where he also doesn't play a crazy person so far somewhere but i've actually never watched departures because i feel like the only people who've seen departures are like screener older than is I am. like yeah people who are like oh this is what was nominated for foreign film this year okay i guess i'll watch it yeah it, it yeah it it really it looks like the like i'm i don't maybe it's a great film but it really does look like the you know uh, the the senior art film circuit yeah. like stately it's, drama international like a, drama a man called ove <laughs> like that core uh, exactly yeah. a film that if anyone said it was one of their favorite films i would <laughs> wonder what happened in their life and maybe i'm wrong maybe it's fucked up maybe it's a deranged <laughs> yeah. psychotic film about a man with a cello i don't know i don't i, I got right. confused with the soloist because that came yeah, out the yeah, same yeah. year, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's like this, yeah, uh, which is a horrible movie. Uh, so it it's probably has a leg up on that. But uh, but a movie that is very interested in tackling uh, the genders, the two genders, uh, <laughs> A Snake of June. Now we're in trouble. <laughs> Only two. Uh, yeah, but I kind of forgot. So this, this movie is bifurcated uh, into... Uh, woman and man and through symbols uh, title cards uh, dressing as much and I kind of forgot really, did, it's, did anybody else it's forget? trifurcated I, I'd forgotten that too technically it's in three parts because they join there's a, a they they join together because the male part of this film which I suppose is telling and where we're supposed to direct our attention the male segment of this film is like eight minutes long yeah <laughs> and I mean like okay. the film it's, the film in its total is like I think 75 minutes long this is like the shortest uh, like next, right. year. This is, I think it's even shorter than Tetsuo. Um, yeah. It came just after I, Gemini, so this is later Tsukamoto, mid period Tsukamoto at least. 
I know. I thought there was going to be something here for the fellas, but you know, they only give us uh, <laughs> but five I, minutes I, of dude footage. <laughs> I forgot uh, that we were in the woman's section, like when it came to the uh, male section. But, uh, but Jake, what did you think of this? Well, um, it's a shame that the title "Perfect Blue" was taken because um, that was the <laughs> what I was reminded of, and not just the the strange color palette that this film has. Um, very. Uh, where do I begin with the snake of June? Um, definitely with its two halves. I think, uh, I, I found the, the lady half, um, much more compelling, um, is just this tale, this woman who's, um, being stalked by this, uh, seemingly omnipresent, uh, creep who's has negatives of her in lewd positions. But, um, yeah, I don't know. This is a very, uh, very bizarre but at time in beguiling but like at times just strangely sort of uh beautiful film and it's edited very very strangely i don't know if you guys noticed this but like the it's kind of edited like it's coupled together from old photographs because with every cut you can kind of see the line of a of what's called a lab splice um did anybody notice this at all I'm not, yeah i'm yeah. not sure or that's meant to be there because uh, um i yeah because i and maybe it is but i've noticed in several like in the criterion collection recently their godzilla set it seems mm. to be a problem with certain with certain japanese masters and i've only seen it with japanese films yeah um that those splices are showing up on every cut just like a little glimpse of like a line at the bottom of each yeah. frame when it cuts um, and I don't know why but yeah you're right it is it is visible in every single cut and there's quite a lot of cuts in this so it's a little distracting at times so yeah. I would like to think it is purposeful but I, I'm not 100% sure about that my favorite thing about this movie was how Tsukamoto conceived of it because he actually had the idea for a snake of June before he even made Tetsuo just because he wanted to make a porn and this is his idea of a of what a porn is, basically, which is <laughs> well, a creepy movie really without actual make... sex where everyone's soaking wet. There's like snails everywhere. Yeah. Well, he he made he originally wanted to make an erotic film, I think, rather than a porno. And his original outline for the film apparently was a lot more aggressive and sexually charged. Uh, to the point, I think that some people were like, oh, "Are you sure?" Um, <laughs> but uh, as he says, he he kept he, this is funny i mean this is tsukamoto may i think count this among his favorite of his own films and certainly he seems to regard it as like a, a significant project for him that it was kind of a, a turning point for him as a director um he meant to be like every summer june is the rainy season in japan it's a very humid wet season and this film that literally without exaggeration it is raining for the entirety of this film and there's no such point. great shots of of uh to or sorry uh unnamed japanese <laughs> metropolis like those skyline shots with it raining or with the blue filter or whatever it, it, they look great yeah i feel like if you're japanese because i think there's like subsections in like supermarkets and shit you'd probably just be like that's tokyo like i don't understand why anyone would have any doubts about where it's at all of his films are set in the same city the one that he happened to be born and raised in um kind of a weird a weird thing to hedge I, yeah. your bets on uh, that's I wish, you know I wish like I was woody you. allen films uh, in I wish I was american that. metropolis <laughs> For, uh unnamed metropolis story um but uh i i, re I think i remember because i feel like 
Jack, you you might have been really high on this like a long time ago, and um, and maybe others as well in our circle that uh, persuaded me to check it out at some point. This is like in two thousand like five or six or something like a long time ago, and because I, I remember getting it from like the Netflix mail order thing and just putting in it and being like, I'm not ready for this. Like just at that point in in my uh in my life and, and and watching movies i just was like i'm not ready for this like i remember seeing uh some sort of images of like those dudes with the cones on their faces um and it, like maybe it was on the menu or something or the trailer but uh and then putting it in and just being like i'm not ready for it. and so i'm grateful that we're doing this just like we do like the horror podcasts uh where we watch new directors or at least for me uh every october i'm glad we're doing this exercise because sukumoto is like not somebody i would gravitate towards um but like having to be like okay i'm gonna watch these uh this week um and digest them uh it, it really gets me to expand my horizons that's right optimism yeah. vaccine we make you eat your vegetables <laughs> your iron fillings god but uh, yeah, Snake of June is a strange one. Like I say, I think uh, Tsukamoto had planned to make it for years and it was conceived of even prior to Tetsuo and uh, apparently part of the genesis of it for an erotic film I think is in as a drawing that Tsukamoto wrote as a drew as a child um, of like a snail on a hydrangea or something like that. Um, to, to, to know, by the way, because the Snake of June is a really weird title uh, that the June is a rainy season um and I, I don't I don't recall where the snake came from. So I guess a serpentine ma uh, kind of masculine presence, or I, I you know I'm not sure where he got that from. But he it's such a just strange fill or strange title. Um, the whole film is up some uh, some phallic imagery. Certainly, I mean, yeah. there's kind of like a snake penis, another snake metallic penis, a kind of a, a Sukumoto <laughs> mainstay coming over from Sukumoto in one of the film's more unusual passages. It's worth saying, I mean, this film is not like Tsuku or not like Tetsuo. It's not hyper kinetic and aggressive, but it is kind of perpetually strange. Um, its framing is very claustrophobic. It's always raining. Um, as Jake mentioned, the whole film is blue. It's black and white. Uh, it was originally shot on 16 mil black and white, and then they blew it up to 35 mil color stock and put this blue tint over it. So it's a really odd looking film. Um, and so it, it's it's kind of, and again, it kind of continues Sugimoto's, I guess, overarching theme, which is uh, people's kind of disenfranchisement of humanity in an urban setting. Which, you know, is kind of, I mean, is, is really the, the at the forefront in, say, Tetsuo and Tokyo Fist to a certain degree. Um, even Gemini, to some degree, in terms of this idea of, like, one of the things that's interesting in Gemini is how there's Western furniture, you know, that's kind of integrated into a traditional Japanese manner. And there's so there's almost like a, almost a turning point at this point in the 1920s when that film was set of Western uh, kind of culture permeating Japanese culture and kind of melding with it. So uh, it's kind of an interesting that, you know, Gemini seems to stand out, but almost carries through. And then this is very obviously kind of about a woman who is dissatisfied, who's kind of sexually defunct, kind of on, you know, sort of doesn't know what to do with herself. Her husband is kind of just clean. He seems to be a germaphobe. That's all he does is clean. And he's old and as fuck. This, uh, yeah, he's quite a bit older than her. 
um, and she's kind of just buttoned up, and she kind of has a boyish haircut, which uh, I, I get. I mean, honestly, nowadays wouldn't seem like kind of a thing you point and go like she's got something wrong with her. Uh, but I guess in Japan, certainly as a more cons- as a conservative society, certainly in the early two thousands, it's probably something that would stand out a little bit. To, if you know, if you're making an erotic film and you're casting your sexy female lead, and you give her kind of like a short manic pixie girl haircut, uh, it's it's a choice certainly. And the film is kind of about as Jake says the the this stalker who seems to be terminally ill, uh, who is of a kind of unknown kind of volition is sort of pushing her to become herself, to explore sexually, to become sexually empowered. Uh, But he's doing it kind of through coercion, so it's not exactly a charitable act. Um, And then we switch to the man story, and the man is also sexually dysfunctional and kind of inert um, and finds himself in some kind of an insane underground club where they force people to have sex and then murder them in tanks. Uh, but everyone has to watch through a weird, tri- like, cone mask uh, with, a, you know, a distinctly surreal Tsukamoto image. And I think for anyone who's seen that film, those kind of, that, that sequence is a standout. That's kind of something you will, you, once you see it, you will never be able to forget. If you ever see a, a, an image from that, you'll know exactly where it came from. Yeah, that one's um, burned into my yeah, brain. It, <laughs> Yeah, it, it's kind of, uh, it's, so it's kind of, an, I, I cool, I've I cooled a little on this film, I guess, in that I feel like it's maybe a little bit, um, I don't know, like it pulls in a lot of different directions. I couldn't really find a, a kind of easy seat into it, but it is kind of interesting in its idea of tackling urban malaise and sexual dysfunction in maybe an overly sedate modern society um, from, and from a female perspective um, it, it doesn't. I like. I don't know if you know. If you argue, is this um, like? It, I think a discussion of the male gaze would be an interesting one with a film like this. Um, but I don't think any of us are particularly uh, well vetted to 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 lead that discussion. So, someone who who is better at that, maybe reach out. Let us know what you think. Because um, I mean, it doesn't feel like a. a porno or exploitative it feels just a little too weird and cold to the touch for that but it also maybe is so cold to the touch that you wonder can it you know is it angling for any real sexuality and this becomes i think particularly apparent as we move into vital and kotoko which have these very vibrant kind of passages a few kind of an interesting that almost you know represent a change for Tsukamoto moving away from uh, steel and cement to flesh to humanity to the body proper um you know even uh, i guess even like gemini is it doesn't really have a technological edge but aside from a few from a, a, a cursed birthmark and a kind of rotting dog uh uses kind of a visceral image in the opening there isn't really a lot of like flesh to it either it's kind of just the body and framed in in the image so you know he kind of he's kind of moving along almost like it kind of reminds me a little bit of how cronenberg developed from like pure body horror to kind of human but mutated in like dead ringers Mm -hmm. uh to to purely psychological with uh stuff like like spider and a dangerous method and so on i think sukamoto follows something of a similar path but in a very distinct way that's yeah. really interesting, uh, especially as like we uh, are about to talk about Kotoko. Um, I mean, obviously there are gaps here that I haven't seen, and, and we'll fill some of them. But um, 
I feel like we like there's a certain shorthand to like Cronenbergian um, that doesn't take into account his evolution. Like there isn't one type of Cronenberg. Like you know, there, he made a ton of different types of movies, and obviously, like he was like a certain pioneer of body horror. But like, uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, that's watching Spider is something entirely different. Watching M Butterfly is 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 something else. Um, so it's interesting to look at somebody who really did play off of like a lot of the same notes without just being like Cronenbergian because that just is like, you know, the, the drill penis through your brain or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. In a lot of ways, this, this is sort of a swan song with that earlier style of just extreme body horror, but it, it, it still keeps a lot of the themes that his earlier movies explore. So, you know, just relationships that are a little sterile, but they're, they're being disrupted by outside forces and threatened. And, you know, like the, the liberation of the self through the destruction of the body and, and pain and humiliation and, and things like that. They're all there, but the only part that really screams early Sukimoto is we mentioned it briefly. There, there is a scene where the stalker, um, he, he like abducts the husband and kicks the shit out of him with some steel toe boots. And then out of nowhere, uh Oh, here comes my big old robot metal penis. <laughs> and it just like wraps around the guy's throat and starts choking him out. And it, it, it's kind of odd just because it's like, well, the, the brutal face kicks with steel toe boots seem like enough here, but I see we're going over the top. And I, I read an interview with Sukumoto and the, the person interviewing him specifically called this out. They're like, uh, you know, it, there's not a lot of the body horror, but uh, the penis and the uh, choking and what's that all about? And he basically said that it was just an idea that he had and he shot it. And after he watched the footage back, he said, it made me laugh. So I kept it mm-hmm. in. I think it's very <laughs> funny. That's a, good, that's a good reason to keep it. <laughs> that, that's yeah, that, that seems uh, very on brand for Tsukamoto. I think, like, uh, as much as we compare, like, say, David Lynch is certainly, you know, kind of a of similar terrain. He's someone who, there's no doubt his films are edited to his own sensibilities. Yeah. Um, and I would say, again, that Snake of June has, um, deals with a mastectomy with a, the, the woman has a breast removed or is possibly considering having that for cancer. And I suppose that plays almost Tokyo Fist as body modification for the woman. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a move towards medical, uh, kind of, uh, you know, exploring the body through medical procedures, which again, in Vital, when we talk about that in the next episode, Vital is about dissection. Um, you know, it's it's kind of, yeah, this is like a bridge in, in Tsukamoto's work between a kind of supernatural body transformation to medical mutation to eventually moving into more psychological realms. Um and yeah, it's kind of an uneasy balance in this one, which is, I guess is part of why I say I, I have difficulty finding a place in this film. It's just a little, it's a little cold. I, I guess it's kind of, it feels like one of those films that maybe it's not quite as obvious as say Tokyo Fist in how it's handling its its elements, um, which maybe is kind of nice. I feel Tokyo Fist is, while I like it, I feel it maybe gets a little bit repetitive. Um Tetsuo is so on the nose, you don't really have to think about what it's about, but it's so just overwhelming in its style. I kind of love that. I love just the energy and the chaos. This one is kind of a little bit more mysterious, but it's uh, 
in being mysterious, maybe it's also a little bit kind of like distancing to me. It's maybe one of the yeah. first of Sukumoto's films that I find myself kind of pushed a little bit away from. Well, uh, um, but, that's, but I would that's still the certainly recommend. It. Like, it's it's a movie where it's constantly like keeping you at arm's length and pushing you away, but at the same time, that's what makes it compelling. You know, we mentioned is is this kind of an exploitation movie, and it really walks that line because even the stalker guy, it's it's not like you know, the scene from Black Christmas where the killer calls up and it's just like, oh, I want to get your pretty pink cunt. Uh. Like, it's not like that. It's it's Spoiler. it's very, like, I, I, I'm calling you because <laughs> you helped me and now I want to help you. I want I want you to, you know, truly reveal who you are and, and, and be yourself. And clearly it's in yeah, a manipulative, there's... fucked up way. But yeah. he's coming at it from this weird altruistic standpoint and then that's reinforced later when, you know, she has, she has breast cancer and he calls her up and he's just like, uh, yeah, I've got photos of you still, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to continue to make you do stuff. By the way, uh, make sure you get a mastectomy or I'm not going to give you these photographs back that I have of you. It's just like, <laughs> it's also, yeah, it's, it's also one of the films, I guess, that starts in a, in a kind of a, a, a lineage of Tsukamoto casting himself as like a stalker that becomes something of a recurring theme in some of his later films. It's a so, natural creep. Good. Yeah, good for him. <laughs> Embrace it. Yeah. There's kind of this, with the rain, there's kind of like this motif that it's, uh, I don't know if it's sort of cleansing uh, the actress because after these extended encounters where like she's forced to like go into a mall and wear a mini skirt and like masturbate in a public restroom, um, she goes home and she like takes a shower, but it's it's like not really a, it's more of a like a, like a cleansing, like a healing kind of shower. And this all comes to a head with, we, I don't, we haven't even mentioned the, the crazy climax where she's standing nude in the rain while the stalker is just snapping photos of her while her husband masturbates furiously in the corner. And it's, it's like this hyper behavior edited. Yeah. It's this hyper. Well, yeah. This, this is part of my, yeah. I mean, this is where I talk about, you know, my, my questions about male gaze in the film. Like it's, it's interesting because it's a film about liberated female sexuality, championed by a coercive man mm. and it's and i don't i don't exactly know how to process that you know within the context of the film because the film otherwise is so kind of detached and strange like i genuinely i just i kind of i don't know what to make of it to some degree so i you know i don't know if if do women like this film does it, you know i'm i would gen like i genuinely would be interested to hear just does anybody know a girl like, <laughs> uh yeah there we go why, why why dress it up yeah so yeah maybe the next time we should we should do a revisit for for tsukamoto in a couple of years and in that time we can scope out you know a special guest who can give us all the answers <laughs> a great proposition okay yeah how could you, anyone you, turn it down if you know any ladies, hit us up at Optimism Vaccine on Twitter. It occurs to me, I mean, based on this film, what we should be doing is just cold calling people and harassing them <laughs> until they do it. And then they'll have a great time and they'll thank us. Mm -hmm. This is great. Yeah, I think I'm going to call up my sister and be method. like, I have photos of you. You need to watch A Snake of June <laughs> and talk to your brother about it. That would go great. I would love maybe, that. Maybe don't do that, Steve. Uh, I don't know. You get, you're a real dream smasher. Thanks a lot. I've been meaning to call my sister anyways. Now I don't know what I'm going to talk to her about. <laughs> Just fucked up Japanese movies are on the, the old family roster. Yeah, that'll be great. That'll be great. Uh, I think last time I talked to her, she was talking about Hamilton. So, you know, we had a lot in common, me and her. 
Uh, oh, no, anyways. in that case, you owe her. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, let's move on to the last movie we're going to talk about today. Um, I, I'm going to let you guys kind of drive this one because I, I watched it under some weird circumstances. I had to make it an emergency <laughs> trip to Minneapolis, and uh, I, I watched this on a laptop. For a Juicy Lucy? Yeah, for a Juicy Lucy. I needed a stuffed cheeseburger real bad, and so I watched this on a laptop sitting five feet away from a 98-year-old man <laughs> sleeping in a recliner. Um, which, if you've seen Kotoko, you know how fucked up that is. And if you haven't, well, we're going to tell you why. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, four, four dudes are going to tell you about this movie. Uh, oh, boy. I, I don't really feel equipped to, to talk about this in, this, uh, in any sort of real depth the same way that... Um, uh i don't know if like and for the same reason that i was i felt kind of distanced uh from this emotionally as like just something that is foreign to me which is like you know motherhood and trauma and uh uh various disorders I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll tell you um this one i really i i really enjoyed this a lot more this a sec this is my second time viewing it. It's been a while since I first watched it. And it's kind of it, for the dumbest reason in a sense, frankly, and then I have a, an ailing dog who had a very rough morning and, and he got me out of bed at like four forty AM because he's got dementia and he wanders in circles and he starts howling when he gets stuck places. His back legs don't work so great. He's an old man, he's having some struggles. Um but this, like in the stupid way, not that I'm going to say that like having a child is like having a pet or whatever. It isn't. Pets and children are different. Uh, for one thing, the police come if you accidentally lose your child. Uh, for example, that's a significant difference between them. And also children, you know, grow into actual people. Whereas even my dog's brain fully functioned, he was still dumb as shit. Um, <laughs> but this but this film has a kind this film is, is interesting to me in that it is oftentimes very extreme uh, deals it's a film about mental illness um a woman who is suffering from various mental like kind of psychological maladies who has a child and she's just really the the world is just a tumultuous terrifying place for her she self-harms she sees these doppelgangers uh, that kind of you know one is evil one is good but they're hallucinations they are constantly coming for her um she, at one point she witnesses her child's very violent death which is explicitly shown on screen in a fashion that frankly <laughs> if you know Lars von Trier did it everyone would be like oh this is the most extreme well, film ever Sikamoto <laughs> does that without missing a beat but the thing you know you know why that that scene worked at least for me is um <clears throat> like very early on in this movie you're 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 set up with like uh I guess in college they would call it the um the uh what is it the unreliable narrator right like mm -hmm. uh sure so you you know you know that certain things that are happening especially like when that happens which is in sure. the back half of the movie uh you know that stuff is 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 happening is not necessarily false which is like such a better way to play it than for like cheap thrills oh yeah no absolutely um and i know i talk about this film being extreme but i think it's actually um like what really struck me this time and because they bring it back to my dog who I had a very rough morning with before watching this film this is a film basically about kind of a difficult tumultuous journey to justify why we live and why we 
do anything the the kind of value of life this is uh, you know in a sense of all the films we've talked about this is probably his most his most kind of life affirming film um, I would I would kind of remind us something of like Upstream Color actually is like an equivalent film and the film that is kind of very dark in its details in where it goes but that really comes out at the end with kind of an affirmational message um, there's a very unusual kind of a thing um, you know most films that want to like give you kind of like a positive boost tend to be all happy clappy and they tend not to be very convincing um it works better when you kind of really get down into the dirt because honestly all of us have something we're dealing with um but it's it's worth noting this is um we talk about Tsukamoto being really like a one-man film factory but this uh Kotoko is really his um maybe the film he's given away the most to someone else and that's Coco who is the the lead actress in this film she actually uh, gets a story credit on this a writing credit she does production design um and uh, the film is by accounts is semi-autobiographical for her and Coco is uh, originally was a ballet dancer who then moved into singing and music and she that's her main job is as a professional singer and musician and then this I think this is her first maybe only acting role i'm I'm not 100 percent sure um but she i mean she has battled with depression and with anxiety and me ptsd throughout her life she has you know and i think she has a child she does have a child actually her son in the finale of the film is actually played by her own son i believe um so in, this is kind of a, a film coming scale, from a, at least oh well <laughs> who knows Maybe just got to keep the shirt with the, like, <laughs> I love you as many stars are the sun, like a fantastic, like, uh, Asian style shirt full of, like, weird English. Although it actually kind of fits well with the way the film goes. So for all I know, actually, that could have been quite on purpose. Um, it's not quite as bizarre as some of the shirts you see showing up in Asian films where it's like, it's like a warm heart touching scene, you know, and there's some child would like, fuck the police with their <laughs> sweater or something. Um, but yeah, um, Kodoko is, is it's a really interesting film in that it kind of drags you through this very violent, aggressive vision of kind of mental collapse and comes out the other side of it saying, it's not easy and it's not okay. And this woman, you know, she, I mean, she finishes the film in, in a mental asylum, but there's these kind of hope, there's these elements, hopeful elements within it. And it's really... I mean, I, I gotta admit, like, I was in tears by the end of this film, which is uh, it's the first Tsukamoto film that's done that to me of this batch. Uh, when we get back, I'm really hoping Vital holds up as much as I, I remember it holding up. I haven't seen that film forever, so when we when I revisit that, I hope that one kind of has the same effect it did in me when I was quite a bit younger. But yeah, it, it, this is really the kind of it's it's kind of unusual in that this could be the film you would recommend to people as the most his most human it film. This is be... not really. Yeah. It seems to be yeah, the it's... one that I see people watching uh, and, and like rating really highly. Like this is in my watch list just from like people uh, watching and raving about it. Uh, so it makes, really? yeah, yeah. It makes sense on that. That's, that's nice to know. Cause honestly, yeah, it's a kind of film again that I just feel like I have not really heard many people talking about. So it, it, and it, maybe, maybe the arrow yeah. set is something that will fix I that. Know, maybe I, it, it, it it reminded me uh, of Lee Chang Dong in a way, like the his two movies before Burning, particularly Poetry and especially Secret Sunshine. 
um, which Secrets of China is another movie that kind of uh, just tacitly shows Lars von Trier how to actually make movies about women suffering. If we get down to it, this is basically like, what if Dancer in the Dark was really fucking good? Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, is yeah. That... <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. They, my take they, on they it. both yeah. are too. Like the, you know, playing with these, uh, very volatile moments, like these granular moments of, uh, volatile emotions and being able to, to pull them off without being, um, without, you know, I, I, like, which is strange because sort of, yeah, without being cheap. Yeah. Which is strange because I mean this film, as much as I talk about extremity, like watching this segment, there's like a whole slapstick comedy sequence in the middle of this movie while she's like self-harming, and he's like yeah. Sukumoto shows up in this film as a stalker, kind of. He's yeah, this, a, an award-winning say, author. Steve, in- you said that this is kind of like how you and Susan met, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She yeah. kept seeing doppelgangers of people and like trying to smash their faces in. I broke into her house. I mean, it's it's a it's a classic love story. And you couldn't yeah. take engagement so, so- photos because your face was beaten to a pulp, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that. It happens. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a whole sequence in this where where she's self harming. Tsukamoto's like running to try and find the right towel to mop up her blood, and it's never the right towel. And then I can't remember <laughs> if it joins onto that, but like there's a scene where they're like his face is all messed up, and they're like trying to fight over a door he's chasing her and they end up both of them managed they're like both fighting over the door uh, to keep it between them and they managed to both bang each other in the face with the door and it's like it's literally slapstick yeah. thrown in but it kind of it, you know and it, it's just such an unusual element of of levity in in the just midst being of like assured, self-harm like, assure of what yeah. you're doing and and like assure of the emotions that you're trying to pull off yeah. No. Yeah, absolutely. And and the film has I mean it's got so many of these elements. Like Vital um which we'll talk about later has um kind of sequences in Okinawa in the tr- kind of Okinawa's separate island in Japan and has kind of like a tropical climate. It's it's more lush and verdant than definitely uh Tokyo, um, which is our main reference point for for Tsukamoto films. And he kind of uses that in Vital but also here as this kind of like a uh, um, and I believe Coco is from Okinawa. I believe that's actually her home, her where where she's from originally. So um, it kind of becomes like a kind of a a, a refuge, a, a kind of stand-in for human feelings. Sort of, it's not decayed. It's not urban. It's not uh, kind of uh, what would you say dysfunctional. It's a very immediate, real human setting and mm-hmm. yeah. a, a natural setting and it, it, this it's employed very successfully here and another thing that i like in this film that he employs uh, really well um there's it's just such a, a strange beautiful sequence after kodogo believes her her child has been murdered um or dead otherwise and she's not quite sure what's happening because her you know she really is losing her grasp on reality there's this incredible sequence where her apartment just kind of opens up um, and there's all these like little, almost like like little like 
grade school theatrical presentations little origami birds dropping there's like these little strings through the wall that get pulled to make it look like there's like running water like rivers everything's painted up and it's this incredibly lo-fi compared to what we know Tsukamoto would do in like Tetsuo like from his from the very his very beginnings even with like Adventures of Denshu Kozo or Phantom of Regular Size like his very earliest films there's this incredibly intricate production design uh, like his his vision, Tsukamoto, like like his, his films or hate them. There's no denying that his films have this incredible visual intricacy to them, um, in their settings and this kind of strange childlike kind of thing opening up. And it's not exactly like uh, positive. I mean, she's in a very fragile state of mind, but it's this, this sort of like beautifully strange lo-fi setting it's really just kind of a, it's such an unusual sequence and Tsukamoto is able to employ it and and kind of bring it out just so easily it kind of again just shows this incredible range that he's developed as an actor or as a filmmaker um to be able to kind of move between those things and this this film Kodoko is is so removed from his earlier work I mean this is a later this is 2011 so we're 10 years on from Snake of June almost which means we're 20 years on more than 20 years on from Tetsuo so this is a much older wiser Tsukamoto I guess um but it's it's kind of unusual because the the extremity is there or the yeah, but but it's kind of sublimated into more actually human concerns it's not like I'm turning into metal it's like I'm don't know how to keep my child safe, <laughs> which is, you know, a much more pressing concern, I guess, for most people day in, day out. I, yeah. I, I do like uh, that um, that thing that kind of kicks it off, like, immediately where she's, and it's recurring, where she's kind of like, I could open my arms and just drop this child, uh, and it could die. Like, that is... I'm sure that's a symptom of, of something much greater like that she seems to be really plagued by. But it's something that I've never seen in movies before. But like, <clears throat> think about all the time, uh, not in the same way, but <clears throat> sorry, but like just dri like driving and being like, I could just tilt the wheel and like kill off these people you know like yeah, yeah. it's a very okay, elegant Dwayne, i gotta get of... back to earth now <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it's, it's it's a really yeah i mean it's a very fundamental human notion it's something i think uh, kierkegaard wrote about it originally as like when you that, that kind of strange feeling of you stand on the edge of a cliff and you look down and there's almost this kind of feeling of like i could just jump you know kind, yeah, kind of like but... confronting this kind of you know your place in a world where you're a vulnerable Body. But, have, but um, this and also it also well I would just say it all it also reminds me a little bit of like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Bjork's Hyper Ballad, uh -huh. which I think is a f fantastic love song, but it's a love song kind of about throwing things off a cliff and damaging <laughs> things to reaffirm uh, the vitality and fragility of of a loved one of something tangible, uh, you know, which is kind of a strange reference point that I just thought of, but I think yeah, there, there's kind of a similarity between these two films and kind of a destruction to uh reassert something quite beautiful yeah it, well wanna, there's a power involved sorry jake you um, go ahead <laughs> i wanted to just get some things off my chest about this movie yeah um, please no i um this is of all the ones we've watched so far this is maybe my second favorite film of his that i've seen next to the original tetsuo um mostly because i was unprepared for it and not just because of how difficult the um subject matter is but because i was i was i was not 
uh, at all aware that he had something like this in him. Um, and the closest like analog I can think of is like maybe Alex Cox is a director who like starts off making films and they're great and vibrant and bracing, but then he keeps making movies in his old age and they're all just cheap and shitty looking. But um, Sukamoto is still that he's involved into this is nothing short of amazing and um, really a lot of empathy for for Coco and her situation. And it's it's kind of a film you're watching and. I, I can't like Sean. I can't really comment on you know how it accurately portrays mental illness or, or you know her her struggle. But you just you're watching it. And you just want her to succeed. You want her to get out of the situation. Mm-hmm. And um, and also just being as like Jack. I'm I'm an owner of many pets in my house. Uh, the the like the sequence where she's just watching her baby kind of mindlessly play with a pencil and it's holding like the sharp point up but, like I want to reach my hand in the screen and like slap it out of the baby's hand because I just know something is going to go wrong oh god I, but, I forgot that sequence thanks Jake I, it, I, it, it affected me deeply but uh, yeah but like sure. it's but Tsukamoto like he doesn't he's not going for cheap thrills it's 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 all very you know and like you said it, he, she ends up in an asylum but there is this this little quantum of hope that lingers and it, you know it, it's sad to say it does end on a happy note but it's really just it wallops you in so many ways um yeah i think I, it's very successful it. in how it's laid out i think it's very successful in how it's laid out because as sean mentioned like there's there's a lot of hallucinations in this film and it's, it's kind of set up from the beginning that a lot of what happens in this film isn't real or we're never quite sure where reality i mean frankly tsukaboto's character may or may not exist um entirely up in the air frankly uh, he disappears at some point he just leaves and maybe he leaves because the relationship isn't working but i mean maybe he just was never there and um, but in the finale where she meets her son who's grow he's much older and they kind of it, it jumps about like maybe 10 or 12 years easily um between kind of the second last to last sequence but there's this wonderful when she meets her son and as he's leaving he doubles some of these actions he repeats actions that she did with him as a child mm-hmm. and it's just, it, it's kind of a, a, a way of asserting that this part of the film is definitely real this is something real that happened and yeah it kind of kind of affirms that there's for all her fears about her child and raising him and functioning with that that he you know she's you know that he's gonna be okay he's he's real he's there he made it um and hopefully that will buoy her up to to also get better you know and, and it is it's a film of just such vulnerability um it's it, there, there's just not many films like it really that i can think of um Funny enough, I think of something like uh, Lar- you know, we've been shitting on Lars von Trier because he's a piece of shit. Um, but yeah. but um, I'm I'm reminded I'm reminded a little bit of say another dogma film, Open Hearts, um, which is uh, was that Suzanne Beer? Beer? Yeah. I think we did it. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, which is you know another film I think of that is just such a vulnerable, like a film that just kind of gets into messy vulnerability and doesn't shy away, just kind of explores it in a very kind of interested um empathetic fashion you know and it's kind of it's it's not something you find in films that often it really sticks out when you find it because if you connect with the film it's you know it'll stay with you and it's kind of strange to me because kotoko didn't connect with me that way when i first watched it i you know 
it, it just something didn't click and I, I liked it and I liked the idea but this time like I say I was just kind of I was a bit of a wreck by the end wow. of it um, you, and you this must... is definitely a sh- rocketed up my my ratings uh, for Tsukamoto's work I, I I hope it does the same for me in the future like I, it seems to be one of those movies where you kind of like for me at least where I, I need to be acquainted with it and then get reacquainted with it later but uh, so you must have been really disappointed when you saw Bird Box then huh <laughs> Uh, does anyone really see bird box i believe you're supposed to blindfold yourself up um i've never watched that film but they're making a sequel apparently okay didn't it come out like when everybody was home or something i feel like it came out during the super bowl or like everyone yeah it was everyone saw marketing thing and so well sean you were you were talking about how yeah sean you were talking about how great it was that you know we've put these tsukamoto films on your radar you know now you're watching them so maybe we maybe you can do that for me with bird box and bird box 2 electric boogaloo i hope the air's on board for the sequel (laughs) oh absolutely who couldn't be (laughs) well the the one thing i want to say about this movie before we wrap the podcast up is you know there's a, a million films out there that deal with mental illness to varying degrees of success but the one thing about uh Kotogo that I think not a lot of movies are particularly great at is it does a really wonderful job of subtly just showing how the world around the main character is failing her completely, you know? So mm-hmm. there's there's this sequence where, you know, she, she gets her child taken away and it's not because she's literally like seeing doppelgangers and freaking the fuck out rightfully so and and has all these other issues and is self-harming it's because you know somebody reported her child crying loudly and they thought she was an unfit mother because of that and they took her kid away and there's there's really other than Sukumoto's character there's there's no one else in this world really no one's paying attention to her no one's interacting with her I think there's one other woman who walks by and it's just like oh cute kid like that's about it the world is completely ignoring this woman and even Sukumoto's character when he comes in because Sukumoto is is the master of just playing shitty dudes which I fucking love but instead of genuinely helping her or doing something or anything I mean he interacts with her by stalking her initially great job and then after that his solution to deal with her mental illness is to let her enact her violence on him instead of herself just transferring the violence like that's going to do anything different and then obviously we see him just beat to a bloody pulp to the point where it's almost like tokyo fist where his face is just mush you know and it's it's not doing anything for her anymore. And he's just like, oh, the wounds will heal soon. Then he can beat the shit out of me again and, and all this stuff. And it's, it's just these, these two terrible people that are feeding into each other. And the whole thing is really fucking heartbreaking. It's just an absolute punch in the gut. Uh, so, yeah, highly recommended if you want to feel like shit. But it's, it's a great movie. And, and one of Tsukamoto's longest at 91 minutes. Oh, God. An eternity in Tsukamoto yeah. time. If you're if you're feeling like an epic, yeah, put this one on. As close <laughs> as it gets with him. As close as it gets. All right, guys. Well, I think we should wrap this up. But before we do, uh, we had a special request from one of our patrons on Patreon. That's right. You can go to Patreon, look up Optimism Vaccine, and you can give us money. It'll help us out. But uh, one of our patrons, she pledged to a tier where she got to pick an episode topic. And instead of that, she said, hey... 
can I cash in my episode token and ask you guys to bring back putovers? And I said, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Why the fuck not? Let's do it. Uh, so, Jake, what are you putting over this week? I want to put over the, um, well, first I want to put over my wife um, for getting a new router <laughs> to fix our internet. Um, if you were listening to, to this, there's a, there's a fat chance you're not. But Keep I, it at home, I Jake. You. Yeah. Okay. But for for something uh, for something other people can enjoy, um, I'm gonna put over the snazzy new uh, Bruce Lee box set from Criterion. Um, I've been diving into the films and uh, really just a lot of fun. Um, I don't think you can ask for a better screen presence than Bruce Lee. He's just so fascinating and magnetic to watch. And uh, as I, I get deeper into his old works, which I've never seen before, I find that they're actually really quite excellent. Um, so, yeah, if you want some good old-fashioned 1970s martial arts where uh, Bruce Lee walks into a Japanese dojo and proceeds to demolish everybody. Thank you, horn guy. Yeah. <laughs> proceeds to demolish everybody <laughs> yeah. in sight. Uh, have at it. Bruce Lee. The best. Nice. I think that guy outside is really into Bruce Lee, too. Seems like he's on the same yeah. wavelength as you. <laughs> Jack, what are you putting over this <laughs> Honk week? Honk if you're like water. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what am I putting over? Uh, well, I wasn't really, I wasn't really prepped for this, so thank you, you for all your briefing, Steve. That's what We're I do. We're very organized here. I love throwing curveballs at you, I'm motherfuckers. Gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna put over. Um, you know, I'm gonna be super boring. I'm just gonna put over Frasier because I've been watching a lot of Frasier recently. <laughs> so if you've never heard about it, a very successful sitcom from the 1990s, uh, starring Kelsey Grammer, a noted Republican. Um, and he plays a psychiatrist, so he could meet someone like Kotoko, perhaps, and he would give her two seconds of stupid advice and then he would hang up on her because his show seems to not talk to anyone when there's a dial-in show. But no, seriously, um, Frasier is, uh, honestly, it's really good. Uh, I kind of forgot how good it was, how solid a comedy show it is. The 90s was really, how were they so lucky to get Seinfeld and Frasier? And uh, really, the star of Frasier, though, is not Kelsey Grammer. It's it's David Hyde Pierce playing Niles, um, who is just so fantastic, honestly, in his his weird camp demeanors and stuff. So it's all on Hulu. So if you're just looking to, to burn some time, go and watch Frasier. It's it's a lot of fun, and it will ask very little of you, which <laughs> I am kind of you know it's kind of good to to counterpoint that against the movie with the child getting his head blown off. Yeah. So that doesn't happen in Frasier. Not yet, anyway. Uh, wait till you get to season seven. Then shit gets weird. Oh, man. Is that <laughs> it? Okay. You're looking forward to it. All right, Sean, what are you putting over this week? Uh, I'm torn between two things. Um, cheers. Be between two cheers. Friends. Yeah. Uh, now, <clears throat> uh, something that uh, I rewatched recently was Enemy of the State. Uh, I'll go the film route. Um, and the Tony Scott movie from 1998 starring Will Smith. And I hadn't seen it in a while. I, I, I've seen it multiple times. And it was always one of those things where I was just like, yeah, I know that's good. And I, I've been a fan of it. And I, I don't really need to rewatch it right now. Like, I, I know what it is. Um, and I finally did. And, and it kind of just like blew me away. Like how how much better it is than I thought it was. Or that I recognized that it was when I was younger. But um it's a movie from 1998, like coming during this period where the internet was, uh, it seemed to be taking hold, uh, 
of increasing, you know, daily parts of our infrastructure. And um, Tony Scott makes this movie about that, that kind of like riffs on the conversation uh, pretty uh, explicitly, but, but kind of turns it into uh, how the state is, is listening to us and, and ruining our lives. And, uh, it, but the, the cool, is it about journalists? Cause no. I hear journalists are enemies of the state now. <laughs> no, it's not. It's just a, a civilian. <laughs> um, but uh, what's cool about the movie as well is that there's like 25, like no joke, there's probably like 25 character actors in this movie that it's just like chock full. Like every single scene has a different character actor, whether or not they like, you know, continue on in the movie. It's just like there's so many. I, I don't know how he, he did it, but um, yeah, it's just really, really smart movie that isn't trying to be you know like pretentious uh movie it's just like really works within its genre of this conspiracy movie that uh yeah it's good enemy of the state nice all right well this week i'm putting over turning your fucking brain off um you know the, the world is shit um i've had a lot of like personal family tragic things happening lately and i need something that is just absolute, like, junk food. And I found the perfect junk food. So I've been watching on, I think it's on Hulu, maybe it's on Amazon, I don't even know anymore, but I've been watching every night a show called Finding Bigfoot. And this ran on, like, the Discovery Channel, I think, a while back. And this show ran from, like, 2010 all the way up until 2017, which is a long-ass time for a TV show like this to exist. And wouldn't you know it, guys, they never find Bigfoot, okay? But it's it's wonderful spoiler. because... spoiler, come on, Steve. <laughs> it's just a bunch of incompetent assholes bumbling around in the woods, and every time they hear, like, a stick break or a bird call, they just go, oh, yeah, that's definitely a squatch. We got a squatch here. Say a squatch. <laughs> squatch, like an industry term. Uh, they, I mean, they use it as, like... It, it's an adjective for everything. Like, they're just like, oh, yeah, it looks, this is a pretty squatchy looking area. Like, that's just, I guess, I guess if you spend all your time hunting for Sasquatches, if you just drop that first syllable, you're actually saving a lot of time over the years. <laughs> so it's, it's great because every single episode is them bumbling around and failing miserably. And yet they, they had a successful TV show for six fucking years. And it really makes me feel good about myself and my prospects in life. Uh, and it's there's these two guys like Matt and Cliff who are interchangeable. Uh, they're just kind of these overweight, like bumbling rich guys who have been doing this for a long time. But the the real spice that makes this an incredible watching experience is there's a guy named Bobo. And he's there because he does Sasquatch calls. So he he just when he's in the woods with them, all of a sudden he'll just be like, and then he waits to hear if a Sasquatch will call back to him. And he's also a master of knocking because I don't know if you guys know this Sasquatches in order to communicate, they yell at each other and they also bang on trees. So he's just going, Aah! and then just he'll pick up a branch and just smack the shit out of a tree for like 30 seconds. And then they all just stand there in silent revelry, just waiting, waiting for the Sasquatch to call back. Of course they never do. And then the other great part is they have this woman named Renee and she's like the scientist, like actual scientist 
skeptic person that they bring along because they're like, yeah, we're going to show this real scientist what a squatch looks like. And it's amazing because she deals with all their bullshit. And my favorite thing is they spend two nights in the, in the location, but every single time the guys go back to a hotel and they just go, yeah, well, we're going to head back into town, Renee. Uh, I think you should camp out here today. And they just leave her in the fucking woods. <laughs> just every single episode. <laughs> but they always present it as, yeah, we were going to let you go back. though. We're just going to leave you in the fucking woods. So it's, it's incredible. Just incompetent well, men in the woods. It's, it's everything I need in my life. Steve, you, you might joke at them, but at least uh, they know a girl. They do. So. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> more, more than our show has. <laughs> I, I wish, yeah, if, 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 you're a, if you're a girl, you can be on a podcast and we, we won't even leave you in the woods unless you ask. And then we'll say sure. So that's our promise to you. All right, guys. Uh, well, if you're listening to today's podcast, do us a big favor. Uh, check out the description of the podcast you're listening to right now. There is a link there that will take you to our iTunes page. Please, if you are listening and you have not done this yet, rate and review our show. You can give it a star rating, give it five stars, and then it'll give you the option to do a written review. You can write anything you want, um, anything, literally anything. Just give us five stars and write something. It helps us immensely with discoverability because Apple has an evil algorithm that relies on these written reviews. It's all fucked up. You got to help us out here. We're doing the best we can. We're just a bunch of guys bumbling in the wood looking for squatches. Uh, in addition to that, there's also a link to our Patreon. We mentioned one of the Patreon perks earlier where you can pick a topic for an episode for us if you want to. And there's, there's a bunch of different perks depending on how much you want to give us. Just give us a couple bucks. Three bucks a month. That's it. That's all you need to do. Help us out immensely. That'll give you access to a whole backlog of content. Uh, in addition to brand new uh, subscriber-only content. So uh, really big bang for your buck. And again, helps us out immensely. Podcasting is expensive. Shit breaks. Uh, things sound terrible. It just, it just costs money. Please help us. Please help us. Uh, other than that, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, maybe you know a girl. You ever meet one? At Optimism Vaccine, where you can tell us all about it on Twitter. Or you can email us, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Adam Myros is standing by, hitting refresh on the inbox because he certainly doesn't know a girl either. Uh, other than that, Jake, <laughs> last word is yours. You want to bet on a dude fucking an alligator, money plane. <laughs>